0: on Twitter from the Slurk Gang Podcast. Cotton joined me to discuss Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. This was a really intriguing conversation. I had never heard of Mark Fisher before. Cotton brought him up, brought him to my attention. So I was excited to kind of dig in to these ideas. But first, as always ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs go to ryanbunting.com ryan bunting is a great anarcho-capitalist and a great libertarian so go to ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs he designed my podcast logo and pete quinone's podcast logo as always thank you tom burton for the music I am here with Cotton, Cotton Archist. What's going on, man? Hey man, how's it going? How's it going? It's going. Just another day in the in the truck.
1: I got you.
0: So we decided to get together and and record an episode about something I know very, very, very little about, which is kind of cool, because I'm going to be learning as the audience is learning. But uh is this your first like serious interview or or podcast that you've ever done
1: no i've done at least one other where i did two hours on nietzsche
0: okay okay so i
1: I, and then i I think i might have done another one on nietzsche too but uh i I can't remember
0: gotcha okay i just wanted to make sure i never heard you do a serious uh serious podcast and when we were talking about this, I was like, God damn, this kid's going to make me look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. <clears throat> But you wanted to, uh, we wanted to talk about Mark Fisher. Yeah. And capitalist realism, which I've listened. I listened to that audiobook one and a half times. I'm halfway through it the second time. I didn't quite make it through it twice today. Um, but that's because I, I got distracted with, Another friend of mine's podcast, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but uh, the first thing I noticed whenever I was listening to this, the first thing that popped in my head is, is it's Ted Kaczynski. I mean, that's, I mean, that was the first thing that popped into my head, especially the, the section of um, where he's talking about culture and, and how culture's been like ripped away from, from the people and like you're not able to, if you're just conserving the culture, you're actually not moving forward at all with culture. And you know so that was, uh, that was something that really grabbed me in this. And the second thing that I really thought was interesting was the amount of references to pop culture that Mark, right. Mark Fisher used. And how he used it as a as as a reflection of the the death of capitalism or or late term capitalism however you want to look at it. So I really mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting, uh, just the way he was breaking it down.
1: Yeah. So like uh, Mark Fisher, he was a philosophy professor and he had a PhD in philosophy, but he got started writing uh, writing for like uh, in. ME isn't that the the music publication and like Pitchfork and mm-hmm. and stuff like that and he was writing about music and he was kind of a music journalist and he would uh like back in the mid 2000s and early 2000s when like blogging really took off you know that's when like Curtis Yarvin had his uh unqualified reserve what, what's it called uh man I'm blanking on oh names I can't even today.
0: remember what it was called
1: yeah well it was uh it was uh Curtis Yarvin's blog and and um, uh, Nick Land had a blog I don't remember the name of it either and then Mark Fisher had a blog called K-Punk that's, you know, like all these blogs from like the mi- the early t- to late and kind of ending in around 2010 uh, that there was a big blog sphere and um, uh, Mark Fisher got into that uh, by writing about music and so he uh, that that's kind of a lot of the examples that he uses, draws on music and, and the various different uh, kind of epochs of music um, but uh, and then you know he also wrote about I mean, th- that's the thing about a lot of these lefty authors is they pay a lot of attention to the, the feeling of different things so art, they, that's their main draw for examples um, and, that, and that's one of my issues with the book is he kind of Like, he doesn't really define capitalism other than, like, the feeling of what he thinks capitalism is. It's not, you know, a delineated system. But, uh, yeah, like, I I know a big example he uses in the book for kind of the the end of history is Kurt Cobain. And uh, he he was like, Kurt Cobain realized what he was, and that was kind of a pawn for MTV. And uh, that's why he ended up killing himself. And yeah, you know, we can get into the, the conspiracy that he didn't kill himself or whatever, but uh do you know about that? Yeah. Courtney Love. <laughs>
0: yeah. My wife my wife's uh a, a huge Nirvana fan, that's her favorite band of all time, and I refuse to get into that on on okay. this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I got you. But uh like he realized that, you know, he was going to be like another Jim Morrison. Or something like that, right. and uh, that that led to some depression. And Mark Fisher had pretty much the exact same thing happen to him because he committed suicide in twenty seventeen. Um, so I know a lot of people say he was like one of the the last victims of like late stage capitalism. But uh, yeah, he he talks a lot about this concept of hauntology, which he doesn't really he doesn't I don't think he uses the term once in capitalist realism, but He's written about it elsewhere, where it is how there's been no new media, like, post-2000. And maybe you, you could even extend that to 9-11, like, maybe that was the catalyst. But, right. you know, like, after the grunge era, everything has been, like, pop-punk, or, you know, rap, or pop-rap, or rap-rock, or whatever. But, you know, there's there's no new thing. No one is inventing rock, like they invented it or no one's inventing rap like they invented it like it's all kind of mashups of these things that are already existing and there's a sense that no one uh that people feel that they can't create anything new and he first wrote about that in music and then eventually with the book capitalist realism he went on to say that uh people have the exact same feeling when it comes to capitalism or like corporate, you know, neoliberalism or whatever. Like, the, the best you can do is work within the framework of uh, neoliberalism and capitalism as he defines it. And I have issues with how he defines it, but... Right. Uh, but it, it, n- felt like, th-
0: it, it felt like he was using uh, Marx, Engels' definition of capitalism. Mm-hmm. I kind of got the idea that he kind of straddled postmodernism and Marxism like, he wasn't really right. sure what side of the fence to be on there?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, like, he's a—he's definitely a... If he's not an outright Marxist, he's kind of on the outskirts of Marxism. And then he's also a uh, uh, student of Deleuze. Yeah. And uh, Deleuze, that's, that's probably my biggest issue with Deleuze is again he he writes about the feelings of things so whenever he writes about capital like this thing that we call capital he always talks about like the feeling of it and he makes it sound like the super ominous thing like I, I can't remember the exact wording but there's a famous quote from Deleuze that like uh capital is this you know unnameable unmanageable ethereal concept that invades everything and is like like serpent like and and right. you know spreads out and whatever and invade like it's all heavy with negative connotations and is is very uh you know it just kind of infects whatever it comes into contact with and um but like you know I, and that's a problem I have with the book but uh, I do think his main diagnosis is right uh like when he says capitalist realism I think of like our current mode of basically fascism, you know, and uh, like how he, well, here, here's a good example. He talks about the live eight concert and how uh, I, I forget the, the main aim of the concert, but I, I think it was like to get rid of world hunger or like in some incredibly, you know, lofty goal like that. Yeah. I, uh, remember, that's clear. I
0: remember that. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was, the U2, uh, Bono, right, uh, holding that shit. Yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, and uh, so what? What they were trying to do is like raise money to lobby governments to give resources to poor countries. Mm-hmm. And Mark Fisher's issue with that was they what they were trying to do was work within the system that kept resources or took resources from these poor countries. You know, right? And uh, I mean, he, had, he obviously took issue with that. As there, I do.
0: There was a story uh, from that, that time frame during that concert. Some, some small organization had tried to get in contact with Bono to, uh, to get permission to set up a, a table to raise funds for, for something. I don't Greenpeace or whatever. I don't even know what it was. And, uh, and Bono never responded. He wouldn't respond to him. And so they just showed up to the concert and set a table up outside the concert and Bono had him kicked off the property. Yeah. Like it was all about his reputation, about him building his brand. It had nothing to do with actually. Yeah. So I thought his, the way he described Bono's live aid concert. Yeah. I think he did a great job on that.
1: Yeah. And you know, like another good example, I don't remember, what it was called, but there was a big uh, concert like that where uh, they they were trying to raise money to you know fight global warming, and the amount of power they used during the concert, and the amount of private jets flying to and from the concert, you know, I mean it was it was incredible. Yeah. Uh, the amount of emissions they put out into the atmosphere. Was this was this
0: that John Kerry concert that just happened earlier last year, like?
1: no no this was that this was, was a in joke the, that was a joke oh, laugh. Uh, allowed to laugh. I, don't, I don't know man <laughs> i'm too young i don't i, I know, I know who john Kerry is i know who john Kerry is <laughs> but man i haven't i don't if he's got some hot beats i'm not aware of him dude does he does he shred on the guitar yeah, right <laughs> yeah
0: he's <laughs> john Kerry and jeb bush
1: oh hell yeah dynamic dude. duo no, if they had a band, it'd definitely be like screamo death metal, man. You think? Like I'd like, they, I'd like yeah. to see.
0: It. I'd like to see them do some like some like rock rap, you know? Rap- like, okay. Yeah, I want. I want to. I, I I want to hear them cover "Pretty Fly for a White Guy" by All yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Either either it's like super heavy and kind of violent like that, or they're doing like Irish folk music or something, you know. <laughs> And Cor- then like Corplacani? Jeb Bush is up there, yeah. Jeb Bush is up there doing a jig, you know, on stage. Yeah, yeah.
0: Jeb, Jeb Bush is Corpulacani.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, yeah. So like, okay. Oh, so ahead.
0: so one of the things he talks a lot about in the book, and I kind of want to clear up because there's a, and we're gonna get more serious and more more in depth here. I promise. We're just kind of warming into it. Yeah entertaining you bastards before we bore y'all to death. Um, so one of the things that he, uh, he, he fails to define, which nobody seems to define well, and you, uh, in your notes, you defined it pretty well. So I want to go ahead and give you an opportunity to define neoliberalism because I think, I think that's a quite a misunderstood term. A lot of times it's misused and he was using it and i was kind of like okay what are you trying to what are you trying to say with this term is it everybody that doesn't agree with you like what what where are right. we going with this you know
1: right well neoliberalism you know the easiest way to do that is to like juxtapose it from uh, um neoconservatism you know and and i had a conversation with uh I don't know how he pronounces his last name. I'm from Louisiana, so I'm going to pronounce it the correct way. But I had a conversation with Marcel Dumont uh, from the Mises Institute. Or he's a, he's a, uh, he has a fellowship, or not a fellowship, but he's a student there. And uh, we, we, we ironed out that neoliberalism and neoconservatism are basically of the same stripe. And uh, but the difference is that neoconservatives are hawkish on war, while the neoliberals are hawkish on like economic reform and you know stimulus into the economy and supply side economics. Um, But you know I mean the easiest way to do it is like think of a, uh, I mean the 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 perfect example of a neoliberal is Obama. You know he's not very liberal at all he's not really even on the left you know but i mean he's like the, the the funniest meme that really describes this is you know there's like the the political compass for quadrants mm-hmm. and you know there's trump who is in the top right and a little bit more on the right and then you know there's a tiny tiny jump to the left with biden and everyone's like oh no you know we're in a we're in a liberal hellhole and uh, but I, I think that uh, the best way to describe it is um, basically a uniquely democratic melding of government and business. And by that I don't mean like, you know, your, your mom and pop shop around the corner. I mean, you know, Amazon and whatever. That's not a business. I mean, Amazon hadn't turned a profit in forever. Same thing with Tesla. I mean, they're they're not profitable, but they're making a shit ton of money from government uh, handouts and whatever. But um, I, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Uh, that a lot of different people have different definitions. You know, in the, in the outline I sent you, I, I part of the reason why I'm citing so many lefty people, and I, I still have more I'm going to do that I haven't I haven't written down yet, um, is because I think that. Like, the best way to describe neoconservatives is by looking at people on the right. Like, one of the best people to write about neoconservatism is Rothbard, because he was on the right. And I, my, my theory is that because they occupy similar areas of the Overton window. Um, so looking at neoliberalism, which is somewhat on the left, certainly is compared to uh, neoconservatism. Uh, you got to look at lefty people and uh, when, like in Mark Fisher's writing, he, he kind of uses capitalism, corporatism, neoliberalism interchangeably. And I at this point, I don't really have a problem with that. Like, it kind of sucks because Mises, you know, and, and Rothbard, when they wrote capitalism, they basically meant like laissez-faire, you know, economics. But uh, when... Th- these other people that have a lot more sway in the public consciousness, right about capitalism, they basically mean corporatism and, and state sponsored businesses. Uh, Right. And I don't have a problem with that. uh, And that's,
0: I was just going to, I was just going to mention, I did a, my first solo podcast I ever did, it was only like 19 minutes long. And it was based off of a conversation that, um, Parabyland had with, uh, Pete Quinones, and I know I, I fucked up Perry's name, and I, I apologize. I never know how to say that right, um, but my whole point was: is it even worth trying to resuscitate the term capitalism? Because at this point, it has it has such a bad, um, you know, it, it's kind of like this meme now of of the corporatist structure, and and it's it's become exactly what marks and angles were were defining it as at least in the public sentiment for the most part unless you're a conservative they're the only people that hold on to that term in any any way that you know hayek or friedman or any of them guys would have looked mm-hmm. at it but um for the most part in, in in throughout the public it's looked at it in with a uh, as a pejorative and negative connotations and so i would uh uh, that's whenever I kind of abandoned the term capitalism. But, as you were, I'm sorry.
1: Right, well, you know, back to defining neoliberalism, it's it's interesting. Uh, neoliberalism, the term, was coined uh, by the theorists at the Mont Pelerin Society, which included Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and uh, Ludwig von Mises. Wow. And there, there's a famous... I forget what exactly they were talking about. They were like maybe talking about the the best way and the freest way to implement some sort of price controls of some description. And Mises walked out of the meeting and meeting and called all of them uh, uh, socialists. And but I mean Mises is like you look up like the origins of neoliberalism, and that's one of the only one of the only instances like where you go to a major publication and they will write about Mises. Right. Uh, and, and basically what I think they were trying to do at the Pelerin Society was because I mean they were all minarchists like even Mises was a minarchist and what they were trying to do is find the most beneficial way to have the least possible amount of government and allow business to flourish and as anarchists we know that's not possible really um, and, but what it did do Uh, Is kind of like with the founding of America was having a government there really allowed for the market to be incredibly efficient and for the government to most efficiently leech off of the business's efficiency so I I think that is part of why um, the neoliberal system has proved to be the most uh, successful as far as, you know, compared to mercantilism or feudalism or whatever. Uh, as far as just people having things. You know, I mean, we, we have so much shit. You know, our phones and computers and all the beer we want and whatever, you know. We just have so much stuff. And uh, I think that as compared to anything before, uh, it, it is we, we have increased the quality of life so exponentially exponentially that it seems like there there's no hmm like until someone thinks of the next thing and i mean we have plenty of theorists in our community that are really good at that but they don't have public sway but in the public consciousness they they feel like well we're not going back to mercantilism we're not going back to feudalism so that there's there's no alternative and that's uh that, I, that's uh, Fisher's main thesis as far as, like, the, his description of the current moment. And um, I think that that's something that we should really tackle. You know, I, I think that, uh, like, it, it's really good to iron out the specifics of stuff, but also I think it is good to point out, and, and Hoppe is probably the main guy as far as this goes, to point out, like, we don't even know what we're going to do. Like, we can talk about that later, but what we're doing right now is not sustainable. So, like, we we have to get into the mindset that what we're doing right now is going to come to an end. Right. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And we have to be excited about that. And we have to, t- like, it's the it's the last paragraph in capitalist realism where he, he says that it, it's in moments when you feel like, you can't do anything when you actually can do everything, you know. So I, I it, that that's a little white pill that he he drops at the end of the book, and uh, yeah. So I I don't know if I answered your question about defining neoliberalism, but
0: well, no, I, gave you I, a lot I think you did a good job. I, I think what I think the way I look at because you because you're. I, equivocating is not the right word, but I'm just going to use it just because that's the word yeah. that popped in my head. Um, neoconservatism and neoliberalism, and the way I look at it, not necessarily the the correct way, and it's just the way I look at it, is it is an extension of progressivism. Both of right, them. Right, yeah. Right? So you got, you got the right-wing progressivism, you got the left-wing progressivism, you know, so to speak. But compared to actual right-wing policy or actual left-wing, you know, ideology, they're centrists, right? So, and they're centrists in the way that they're trying to maintain status quo, you know, sufficiency. So it's, it's the same reason that Trump was an outcast, but Jeb Bush would have been perfectly acceptable, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it, these, like your Brian Stelters and your Don Lemons, they would have given jeb bush a hard time but you notice as soon as trump won they started praising george w bush, h w bush george w bush cuz they mm. were because they were part of the royalty the the progressivism and you know um, burnham the the guy who wrote the machiavellians he also wrote, wrote a book called suicide of the west mhm and he breaks down liberalism. I mean, it is just in, intense. If you've never read it, I would read it because he just goes to town on liberalism. And he's what he's doing is basically he's lumping in, he's, he's really dissecting neoliberalism and neoconservatism, the progressivism in the United States. But I mean, he is just hatcheting these guys, right? and and just spends like 300 pages just digging deep into what what it is and that's really what we're seeing and that's what we're dealing with and so the the way they're able to to create factions between left libertarian and right libertarian you know it's like yeah whatever man that that argument doesn't even mean anything because as as Fisher's pointing out, like these people are progressively moving forward with their agenda, and it's the reason that you know Coca Cola picks up wokeism. You know, like mm-hmm. they're they're going to utilize your strategies and your implement um, your languages against you. And I think he did a really good job of dissecting that.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, he he talks about how. Uh, like uh, you know one example of that he talks about in the book is the movie WALL-E. Mm-hmm. you know the Disney movie yep he said which like, I was what, what I did... was so
0: shocked that he was referencing a, a children's film yeah. I was like what <laughs>
1: yeah so like his, his main argument is that the movie was making fun of not only the people that were watching it but also the people that made the movie and he he, he didn't mean that in kind of an insightful way that they made this you know like uh this movie that really tapped into the collect- the collective consciousness and it's just, you know, greater work than it actually is. Right. But what he, what he meant was it, it, they, they were implementing the, the societal issues that they were shedding a light on in the movie. Uh, they were implementing those things to make the movie. And, you know, all these people watching the movie, stuffing their face with candy and popcorn and sugary soda and whatever... Are, are watching this movie and they're like yeah yeah we're not going to be like them we gotta whatever and and it, it gives these people like this this uh, this sense of like oh I'm better than you know my enemies you know I'm I'm a green person and I believe in climate change I'm better than the people that don't you know and and it, it, it gives them a sense of satisfaction without actually doing anything you know and the same exact thing, like it's the it's the Pepsi commercial, man, with the Kardashian chick in it, you know, where she walks up to the line of cops and hands them a Pepsi, and then suddenly every all's right in the world, you know, right. yeah. and like people watch that commercial that commercial and they're like, damn, if I buy Pepsi, then we're gonna fix uh, p- police brutality, like that's it, right. you know, and and yeah. it's it's just kind of a. I I don't, I can't, it can't last because it's ridiculous. Like, you know, cigarettes are torches of freedom, right? But like, (laughs) you know, I, man, you know, you're from Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana. Every single time I drive into Baton Rouge, I'm on I I'm on I-10. I drive into Baton Rouge. I see a big billboard for Dow Chemical about how they appreciate their black and LGBTQ plus employees. Every single time I drive in and I mean, I every single time I see it I'm like this make this is incredible like it, I can't be the only one that sees this <laughs> and I'm like are you kidding me like yeah. it yeah it but I mean that's that's kind of what he's talking about you know and and this I I don't know I think once he wrote the book he was he was done with the concept I think he felt like he explored it all that he could but I, I really, w- again, I, he committed suicide in uh, 2017. I really wish, or maybe not, but maybe that's why he committed suicide. But, like, you know, th- there's all this stuff about how Occupy Wall Street was actually, I mean, like, they, they, they made somewhat of a, a misdiagnosis of, of exactly where the problem was. Like, yeah, the problem w- was on Wall Street, but it was also in Washington, you know, even more so in Washington. But, you're, yeah, it was on Wall Street, so fine, you know. Right. So, like, I mean, Occupy Wall Street was a good thing to me. And, uh, and you know, that uh, uh, Peter Schiff talks about that in his famous – I linked it on this outline, you know, where Peter Schiff went to Occupy and was like, y'all aren't wrong, but yeah. you're not totally right. And then yeah. I, I know that there are a lot of memes about this, but it's interesting how immediately after Occupy Wall Street – Uh, All these, you know, finance companies and mega global corporations started to uh, feed these things into the left, you know, the wokeism and whatever. And so now it's like if you don't if you see a commercial about, you know, uh, uh, like a Coca-Cola commercial about, uh, uh, you know, some some weird stuff like, you know, uh, a drag queen is reading. Uh, you know, a book to some kids in a library, and then you know the climax of the commercial is she takes a a sip, of, she takes a sip of Coca Cola, right? You know, and that's the commercial. And if you see that and you're like, you're kidding me, right? I mean, th- this is this is obviously just pure propaganda. If you say right. that, you're a Nazi, you know? Yeah. And uh, like it, that, that's the that's the good people on the left, like Mark Fisher, that see that and they're like, no, this is bullshit. You know, they're like, No, we're not gonna like, no, I I may be on the left, but I don't give a shit about Hillary Clinton. You yeah. know, I'm not gonna vote for Hillary Clinton. Like those are the those are the good people on the left and I think I think that's what uh Pete has really tapped into with his diagonal uh unity stuff <laughs> recently. I actually think you that know, was Aaron's
0: but, idea, but yeah.
1: Right. Well, yeah, definitely uh the 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 blame goes to both of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I I don't know if I don't need I I'm not even sure they're two different people honestly at this point. I've yeah. never seen them I've never seen them in the room at the same time. So That's true.
1: Yeah. So That's very true.
0: <clears throat> but um <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's one thing I, I got, I've gotten into and I'm excited because next week I'm actually having a conversation with Michael Rechtenwald. And so I plan on getting into some of this with him, but I was calling, I started just calling them the corporate left. Like yeah. not, I, I mean, I wasn't even playing with these people. I was just like, yeah, I, Oh yeah, you're just part of the corporate left. And Aaron yeah. called them fortune 500 socialist or Marxist yeah. it was, fortune 500 Marxist, which was fucking awesome. Yeah. And and so it's like, it's, you're, you people aren't serious about your ideology. E- mm-hmm. either, either you're not serious about your ideology or you don't understand your ideology. Something's going on here. There's a disconnect. You're completely missing the point. Now, I did hear Michael Rechtenwald say when he, uh, when he was on Tom Wood's show that if he, um, when he was a Marxist, if he would have seen what's going on now, with with the corporations and the and the the Great Reset, you know uh, the shaping the future of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, all these things that are happening right now in society, he would have actually been on the side of the corporations, right? And I think I think the logic he was getting at was because if you destroy all the mom and pops all the small mm-hmm. businesses, it kind of goes back to this whole Trotsky quote where Trotsky had said something along the lines that if you offer us a government program, we're going to accept it, but the end goal is always the revolution, period. Yeah. It's always the revolution. So we'll accept whatever olive branch you extend to us, but we're still moving forward with the revolution. It doesn't matter what you do. And so it it, it kind of struck me as what Rechtenwald was saying, the Marxists are adopting the corporate like structure, the corporate the corporations like kowtowing to them basically, because yeah. they're not going to that they see the destruction of the mom and pops. So what's that gonna do? That's gonna radicalize regular everyday blue collar workers and push more people into their camp to overthrow the the corporations. So right. It seems like Mark Fisher would have completely rejected that idea, just outright said, no, that's not the way to do it. And I think what he gets at, and I think it's the way I look at it, is that he understands the power of money and and how much power these corporations actually hold over government, not through government, but over governments in, in a lot of cases, you know, and so... I'm just I'm just curious. How do you is that a is that a a position that these people will ever square that circle, the the different strategies?
1: Um, I'm not sure. You know, because like I, I don't know much about Recktenwald's background, but I, I know Mark Fisher was firmly on the left, and and he was on the left of like. I, I, he was on the left to the point where I don't even think he would be pro Antifa. Because, like, it's, it's either you're on, like, the extreme right left, where, you know, you're a Hillary Clinton voter and you live in a gated community and you hate Antifa. You don't say it, but you hate them. Or you're, at, you know, a, some poor, you know, 20 year old that lives in New York City and, and you love Antifa and you may even go out with them. But I, I, I'm not sure if Mark Fisher would even be on that point like as far as like a lefty person goes that doesn't know much about economics like we do, I, I think that uh, I think he's probably one of the more principled people on the left. So I, I think that he was so uh, ideologically pure might be the right way to put it that like just the thought of accepting an olive branch from the corporations, just disgusted him and then you know he also and this is this is something that i i think i put in the outline he definitely talks yeah i did Uh, he definitely talks about in the book is you know he he was a professor so he wrote about uh like the audit system that the uh let me see here yeah it was the office for standards and education in the uk because he was british uh, and what they did was they had this system um, where they would like send a ton of investigators into each classroom to, to, to give an evaluation to all the professors. And everyone hated it. Everyone that, that all the professors hated it. All the university administrators hated it because it was so intrusive and, and just so kind of draconian. So what the, uh, what the, the department did. Was they said, all right, okay, we're going to give you more freedom, and uh, so they instituted a new system of like self-regulation, where each professor would uh, give themselves a grade, and there was minimal uh, evaluators that would actually go into the colleges, and they would instead mostly evaluate the university system of self-evaluation and that I mean it it was it was under the guise of the professors having more freedom but it it just was even more draconian so I think Fisher was a bit uh skeptical of olive branches because you know in the in the societies of control uh that that kind of uh, it 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 always tends to bite people back you know and because I like you, you think about a transaction Right. It's each party in the transaction thinks that they're getting the better deal, you know. So like if if the government gives you a transaction like, hey, we're going to give you this service or this program or, you know, Coca-Cola wants to donate to your political fund. uh, They have a hell of a lot more power than you do. And they're the ones thinking they're getting the better deal. So, I mean, it's it's insidious. And I, I think that that's why he would not be willing to accept those olive branches because he always knew that, uh, they have a lot more inside knowledge of the system than he did. And, uh, they, he, he, it's, it's safer to assume that they knew how to come out on top, no matter what olive branch they extended, you know, in any manner. So,
0: yeah, well, and we saw that, we saw that this year. I mean, um, you know, we, you had during the during the election, you had Kamala Harris sharing um, the GoFundMe to to get bail for Antifa and BLM members that have been arrested. Right. And then as soon as as soon as Joe Biden was elected, BLM's like, hey, wait, they're not even talking to us anymore. They, they won't yeah. they won't say anything to us anymore. And, and yeah. Joe Biden basically comes out and says, yeah, we have no intent on on. on you know, uh, talking to BLM—that's like we—we never intended right. on doing that. So you kind of, yeah, you kind of see how that game is played, and maybe, maybe Fisher had a had better insight on that and and understood that a little bit better than some of these lefties nowadays do. Maybe they think if they're willing to pay lip service, well, if we can get them to pay lip service to hurt their own brand, then we can kind of we can maneuver them in another way. But then you've Mm -hmm. seen some of these brands that started, you know, kind of started losing money, started, started feeling the pain, say, okay, we're going to distance ourselves. I mean, Coca-Cola is an instance of that. They, uh, they fired the attorney that was responsible for that whole woke, you know, you're going to go through this whatever woke training or whatever they call it. And, uh, they fired that, that guy, Hired another lady, and she was like, "Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. It's not going to happen." Yeah. So, so may, I think Fisher had a might have had a better better handle on that, you know, than than some of these guys nowadays do. And uh, well,
1: you know, you know, another thing is if I, I would bet that if the LP during 2016 had a stronger candidate, I bet they would have let them on the debate stage. Because then that well, all that would have done, like, hey, they they gave a great performance, and that would have just taken votes away from Trump. And if if that were to happen, I, I'm pretty convinced Hillary Clinton would have won. You know, we'd have a we'd have a Bill Clinton situation again. Uh, and but it but it would be seen as like, hey, they're giving us a fair chance, and whatever. So I I, it, and and then the other thing is if uh trump was not the nominee and it was jeb bush who they wanted it it wouldn't have happened you know so i i think that like it's this it's literally 3d chess you know or 4d chess whichever the one that that the trump plays uh like it's
0: it's, i I always said i always said all chess is 4d you got the three dimensions of the board and the one dimension of time so it's all 4d but anyway well five you know what i'm Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit there because I don't think they would have put, they didn't put Gary Johnson on the stage against Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You know, like, I don't think they would have given them uh, a shot. And I think, I think it's because they realize that libertarians pull from the Democrat pool just as much as they pull from the Republican pool as well. And, and so I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think the libertarians stand a chance to get on the debate stage. I, I just don't, yeah. especially if you have a strong libertarian candidate. Now, if they if they can put somebody up there to make a fool out of, you know, like somebody that wears a boot on their head or something. Right. Just kidding. Yeah. As that, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no. They, the only reason they would want to put a third party on stage is to make a third party look irrelevant.
1: Yeah. Well, I you know I, I think that I think if what was it was it Ross Perot. That ran with uh, George Bush Senior and Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, it was I Ross think so. Perot,
0: and that's why yeah. they won't put a serious candidate on stage.
1: Yeah, but I, I think that uh, it, it it has to be in their thought process when they were thinking about that that hey, you know, he's right wing, so like if he's going to take votes from anyone, it's going to be from the guy like the one the dude that's not our guy, you know, it's going to be Bush. So, and, and I think that when it comes to anything media, the left, even if that's like the corporate left, you know, like the Hillary Clinton people, they, they have, their, they're, have their hands in that much more. So, like, if, if Trump was the really strong candidate and Hillary Clinton just could not compete, right, and then there was someone that was really strong, like, I mean, if, if, uh, if like, Hornberger was the candidate. Or the nominee right. last uh, election, uh, I I think there'd be much more of a chance because he would just take votes away from Trump, most likely because the people, because you know like the people that voted for and I you know Fisher talks about this in the book a bit, you know like the what what Biden stood for he didn't talk about Biden specifically but like the 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 Biden archetype like the Obama archetype and the Clinton archetype they represent modernism that most people of older generations are used to. And Trump was a very postmodern president. Like he didn't have any set definitions. He constantly like was like, no, I never said that when he obviously did. And we all find that funny because like, we know the moment we're in, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, Biden did not represent that. He, he represented the, these things like normalcy and decorum and, and presidentialness, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't know we don't we don't have to get hung up on the debate stuff but I, oh, I, no, my, no, no my, but my main my main thing is to say that like beware of like concessions you know because yeah. more often than not they come back and bite you
0: Yeah you you're probably not getting the value that you think you're going to get out of it Right you know one of the all right so like the the most interesting part of the book for me Was him talking about he? I don't. I don't even know how to present this properly because I really I was I was trying to grasp what he was saying, which is why I was listening to it again. But he's he calls dyslexia postlexia, and 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 so and he's talking about the 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 mental illness that's associated with late stage capitalism. Now, what what I thought was, was interesting in in chatting with you about this was you grew up in a different generation than I did, right? So I grew up in the 90s, you know, it was kind of, everything was apolitical. We kind of just right. didn't give a shit. Whereas you kind of, a lot of your life was after 9-11. Like mm-hmm. your teenage years, like your whole development really was after 9-11. So when what what is it about the younger generation? What what are, are we missing from from Gen X? What are we missing about the the Gen Z that, that uh, y'all are doing differently but brings us together as you know this these natural allies? We we kind of think the same about a lot of the things, but y'all kind of have, number one, y'all are, y'all are much more political a lot earlier than we were. Uh, Eric and I talked about this a little bit on the podcast I did with him, y'all are much more political earlier and um, y'all seem to be more aware of of what's going on around you than we did. Is it, th- was this something that you felt was necessary?
1: Um no I don't well maybe like I I think the reasoning behind it is that because like for me 9-11 is one of my earliest memories like I was I was almost four years old when 9-11 happened and it happened when I, I, I was like homesick from school and my dad stayed home with me so I, it was kind of a weird circumstance and I think that's the only reason I remembered it like if it had happened while I was at school I don't think I would have but uh, but, you know, another thing is I don't remember a time when we didn't have a computer in the house, you know. So I think it's that it all goes back to dopamine. Like, my my generation has just been constantly just inundated with games and the Internet and then especially social media. Because, like, you know, when social media hit, you know, as far as Facebook and Twitter and stuff, I was in middle school. So we were just able to get access to that stuff and really engage in it and we all did to an uh, incredible extent you know some of us are still doing it on you know Twitter <laughs> but uh, you know like he uh, Fisher says an interesting thing you know he, he calls uh, depression he uses the term depressive hedonia, where he says that uh, depression is typically in the literature and I used to be a psychology student and I can I can vouch for this he said depression is typically described as a state of anhedonia meaning like an inability to uh, search for pleasure you know just you're lethargic and and whatever but you know Fisher noticed that kids don't have an issue with searching for pleasure you know that's why they uh, you know drink constantly and, and you know scroll all day and and just are constantly searching that, for that next hit of dopamine. Uh, the problem is they can't find the pleasure. They're looking for it, but they can't find it. And I, I think the difference between our generations is that uh, generations prior to, like, the Internet being this massive thing that, you know, you're using all day, every day, uh, people, their brains are just wired different. Like I, it, And it's the dopamine thing, you know, it's, it's those neural pathways that are just reinforced every single time you get that like on Twitter that, you know, during, during my formative years I had. So those those pathways are super strong, but for people older than me, they didn't have that. So, I mean, the, the brain is just kind of fundamentally different. And then the other thing is... Uh, everything after, I mean, it, it was getting pretty bad before, but, you know, 9-11 really solidified just the politicization of everything. You know, after 9-11, and I mean, I, it really started with, you know, uh, Desert Storm, but like, I mean, which gas station you went to became a political choice based off of, you know, which Saudi family, you know, or whatever or different, you know, country owned that gas station, so... Uh, I, I, and, and I grew up with that everywhere, you know, like we wouldn't go to whatever gas station because there was like the owner was very anti-American, you know. So I had that in my household uh, where I, I didn't really have that that pre 9-11 like you just do your thing and whatever, like you don't care. I didn't have that. Um, and I guess, you know, and, and it sucks because I don't think that life should be that political. You know, like yes. I mean, you, you can't you can't see a children's movie without being inundated with political themes and whatever, and that's bullshit, right. man. Just, I mean, right? Try, you know, like if, if a children's movie is going to be anything, it should be moral. You know, but I mean, like te- teach kids not to lie. Don't teach yeah. kids that you know guns are bad or whatever. You know, right? Um, but I I, I guess that it needed to happen just because. You, you can't engage in the world these days without being political like right. I mean I even when I was a kid the thought of you know like someone walking up to my dad and asking him who he voted for everyone would be like you know well that's none of your business like everyone around would be like what the fuck you're talking about but now like if someone asks you who you voted for like that that would not surprise me at all or if you got the yeah, vaccine it's just normal
0: everyday you know conversation. That's just yeah. small talk nowadays.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, like, yeah. if you got the vaccine, like, that's, not, that's none of your business, you know? Right. I mean, I, I mean, that's insane, but, like, you have to engage in that to a certain extent. Like, if, if, if someone asks you if you got the vaccine, either you're going to say yes, you know, even if you didn't because you're just like, get away from me, or you're going to say no, and they're going to, you know, jump on you. So... Like you have to engage in that a bit, right. just to interact with people. But then the other thing is, like I, I think people of my generation, either they're the people that really enjoy it, and they're you, you, you should be wary of them, you know, because uh, that that's the next generation's Obama, that's the next generation's <laughs> <Right>. you know <laughs> Mitch McConnell or whatever, and, and beware of right. those people. Yeah. But then I I honestly think, and this goes back to. Fisher talking about depression. I think people of my generation are just so tired. You know, like I I know that I I've talked to my dad about this. Like the the stuff that I have read that I felt like I needed to and the debates I've gotten into because I felt like I needed to. He wouldn't have thought of until after 30.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and I'm 23. So like it's and I, I every person I talk to that's around my age that isn't just a complete burnout which like you can't blame them you know that that's an easy thing to be these days uh, like it's just so tiresome Jesus time, Cotton I mean,
0: you're my son's age yeah <laughs> my My oldest son is 22
1: oh yeah yeah so but like I, you're, I,
0: you're right there yeah yeah <laughs> And he could just not give a fuck about anything political. He's like, I don't give a fuck about y'all's bullshit. Just leave hey, me alone. He's you know, like he's like, I'm a libertarian by default. Leave me alone. Right. <laughs> he
1: hey, takes that's after good, me man. in that way. <laughs> that's good, man. You know, yeah. save save a lot of save a lot of headaches, you know, with that. I
0: was talking to my sixteen year old, uh, we were chatting earlier about um, economics in one lesson. So there's mm-hmm. that because uh my they my uh my 16 year old and my 17 year old texted me a while back and was like dad what book should we read and so I was I was talking to him about books and I bought them I bought them each a copy of economics in one lesson and so they started reading that and so you know I'm talking to my 16 year old about Henry Hazlitt and I didn't even read Hazlitt until I was like 40 you know
1: yeah So yeah and then uh for New Liberty, that's the one that really red pilled me. Yeah, Rothbard. That was yeah. the first one that I was like, shit.
0: Yeah, when he's talking about uh, my favorite part of that book is when he's talking about the slaves were the rightful owners of the plantation. Yeah, I was like, oh yes, I love this hell book. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but um, no. Um, one of the things in that that Fisher wrote about that uh he was talking about a student in his class as an example and uh his student would be wearing headphones in class and but he'd be like it doesn't matter the headphones aren't on and then one day he wasn't wearing the headphones he had them off of his off of his ears like around his neck i'm assuming and he had the music turned on really softly and Mm -hmm. he asked him turn off the music and he's like oh I, i can't even hear it yeah. And he 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 ties this in like what you were just saying this dopamine hit, like being tied into the matrix constantly, like connected to this matrix. And uh, do you find I because I found that that sense, um, the the I was introduced and it wasn't until 2011 that I started. I had a smartphone. I had gone a long time after a lot of other people were interacting on social media and stuff, I had I had just distanced myself from it because I really just didn't care. It didn't yeah. matter to me. And the only reason I got on it was because um, I'm divorced twice and I have five kids. So it's like, okay, my kids are going to be doing this. I might as well be on here to at least have that portion of the relationship. Being a, yeah. a, a on-the-road truck driver, I'm gone all the time. You know, at least I can talk to them. And so that was my justification for getting on on social media. Now, do you find that that you I have found that since I have been introduced to social media, it is harder for me to focus on reading and things of that nature. Do, do you find that to be a struggle? I, I do a lot more audio books nowadays than I do physical books anymore. So much of the focus of my podcast is to point out abuses of power and how bad things have gotten and the direction in which we're heading as a society. And it can be a real black pill. I've partnered up with Richard Grove to offer my listeners an opportunity to sign up to his autonomy course. Uh, The autonomy course is designed for people looking for solutions, people that want to shape their own future, people that are not willing to be at the behest of large corporations or the United States government or the banking system. The autonomy course is designed for those of you who wish to have complete control of the reins of your life, who are looking to be successful, to thrive and not just survive, to provide for your family by utilizing your existing skills and learning how to market and sell those skills in order to be your own boss or learn new skills in order to leverage that into a new career opportunity. So if there's a job out there you've been trying to get or you've been wishing you could get but you just don't have the skills for it, the autonomy course is the place for you to start to learn how to land that position to learn how to market yourself better to gain confidence and to be surrounded by a community of like-minded people that will encourage you and help you along the way so use my affiliate links and go check out the autonomy course it could be right for you
1: yeah yeah I, i do you know and and it's like, th- this is a scary word for people of my generation, but that dopamine fast, you know, just getting off social media, you know, maybe doing some, like, meditation, like, shit like that is is really an antidote to just the burnout that people are, you know, plagued with these days. Um, but I do find it hard to read sometimes, and, and every now and again, I'm like, alright, you know, I, I've taken a couple of breaks off Twitter Sometimes I'll kind of take soft breaks, like where I'm just not tweeting. I'll kind of look at it every now and again. And I'll keep up with the, my DMs and stuff, but like I'm just like, all right, I gotta I gotta be in a different room from my phone. I just have to put it down and go go somewhere else and read, or you know, like I like I brought those tinfoil cowboy hats to Childerburg. <laughs> I, when I was making those, I was like, all right, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna listen to any music. I'm not gonna play anything. I'm just gonna sit outside and do that you know another thing you can i mean that that's just meditation like that that's really all it is or cleaning guns or doing woodwork or mowing the lawn and just not having any stimulus you know just hanging out and just i mean and it's it's really incredible like what meditation does and i really at at this point like not only do you notice it helps you uh just in like functional stuff every day but it's really good for you long term because I mean, like, just it's it's incredible. Just sitting there and thinking about doing nothing, or not not thinking about it, just doing nothing and clearing your mind as best as you can, like that that actively aids in the neuroplasticity of your brain, which can help fight off you know dementia and Alzheimer's and other you know brain-related illnesses and diseases. But it uh, it's really helpful and you know you got to be aware of how harmful like dopamine uh, overdose is and you know that's what pretty much everyone these days is addicted to like I even know people that aren't on social media but like they just watch YouTube videos all day you know they'll watch like puppy videos or whatever all day long or soap operas or whatever it's it's the same shit you know uh, but I, I, I like to think, you know, I, I have this love-hate relationship with Twitter because, like, if I wasn't on Twitter, I wouldn't have gotten to meet people like you and, and some of my closest friends right. now, you know, yeah. or Jay and Ace that I do the podcast with would have never met him. And yeah. uh, I, so, like, I, I recognize, like, for people that are kind of disenfranchised to a certain extent, like, something like that really allows them to get out of their shells and explore like different social connections they may not be able to make just like at, at school or at work or whatever where yeah. people like have no idea who Murray Rothbard is but like you the average person in our circles like yeah you know whatever let's talk about Rothbard yeah i read right. all this, I've read all the <laughs> stuff you know and that that's cool you know you you you, f- you find people that speak your own language but then you get into that mode where you're trying to to get more likes and get more follows. And then it gets kind of insidious and it, it, it messes with your head and you got to, you know, take a step back. Yeah. So like, I, I, I definitely think that dopamine abuse is very, very dangerous. And I don't think enough people, especially cause everyone I talk to is incredibly active on Twitter. Like not enough people really talk about how healthy it is and beneficial it is to just take a step back just take a step back and, and realize what the real world is like because the real world is not twitter mm-hmm. you know to talk to more people at work you know don't alienate yourself from them and, and you'll get a better picture of what the average person is thinking because you know no, no one in our community is is very average <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah no doubt and that's why I, that's how i try to keep my podcast and that's that's how I try to keep all the discussions. Even like when we're getting into something in depth, like what we're talking about right now, it, it's it's like how do we make it, you know, uh, accessible for for the layman, you know, right? Like what what would I list have listened to this ten years ago or five years ago even, you know? Is this you know? And that's kind of the way I look at it because people are typically, you know, your blue collar guy. He's typically too busy with life to really Mm. get into in depth on all these philosophical issues. You know, they, they want to, but, but it's useful information. If you can break it down for them and if you can, you know, talk about it in a way that makes it interesting to them because they only have so much time, you know, you got, you got your average construction worker with, with a wife and two kids at home, dude only has so much time on his hands. He's, he's not got time to to sit down and read you know 30 hours of rothbard a week you know right like, it's just not part of his and that's not part of his his priorities at this point
1: mm-hmm.
0: but um okay so when it comes to the focus do you think it's the dopamine that's creating this division in your mind to where it makes it so hard to focus and you're looking for that dopamine hit or is there something else going on that's, that's, you know, cause I've heard like the light of the phone makes it harder to sleep. Things like that. Yeah. So is there, is there, are there other aspects that are happening that are making it more difficult for people to focus nowadays?
1: Yeah, well definitely. Like the light is a big thing. Cause you know, you think about how our bodies work, like our bodies get sleepy when the sun goes down because that's how we've evolved, you know? So when you're looking at that phone, you know, if you if you're, if you're you go to bed at, like, 10 p.m. and you're looking at the phone, you got that light so close to your, your brain and your eyes, you know, uh, up to, like, you know, 9.55, your brain isn't in sleep mode, you know. Like, it, it, it's going to take a while because your brain still thinks it's daytime because it doesn't know the difference between the types of light, you know, that comes off your phone or the sun or, you know, a lantern or whatever, so... That that's definitely an aspect, but then I I do think it goes back to dopamine, because like think about why someone would be looking at their phone five minutes before bed anyway. You know, it's the same reason for like people that are addicted to cigarettes. Uh, The people that smoke one as soon as they wake up in the morning, it's a lot harder for them to quit. I mean, it's still possible. It's always possible, but it's it's a bit more difficult because their brain is so accustomed to having that you know, uh, uh, during like the, the capstones of the day, you know, like when they wake up and when they go to bed, you know, it's, it's that routine. But like if someone smokes one or two a day at, at kind of random intervals, whatever, it's, it's not that bad and the body will be okay. Uh, uh, as far as just discomfort for withdrawal. But, uh, I, I do think it goes back to dopamine and the pathways, you know, cause when you have that, 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 uh, routine you know um for like and it's the routine of going to bed when the sun goes down those pathways are so primordial in our heads that they're so strong that th- th- we can't rewire that you know i mean it, it and it, that is possible you know but like it, it's possible in the sense that you can rewire it like if you work a, a night shift and you go to bed at at 5 a.m you know, when the sun's coming up, you got the blinds closed and your lights are off or whatever. And that's, that's how you kind of reset your clock. But, but it's not possible to rewire your brain to like get sleepy when the lights on, unless something really pathological is going on, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, I, I, I do think it goes back to dopamine because, uh, that's what, that's what everyone wants and they want it because it's so quick and easy. You know, like, they're, they're, they're the two happy chemicals. There's dopamine and serotonin. A lack of serotonin is the one that leads to depression. And almost always people get uh, less serotonin because uh, they have an excess of dopamine. So, like, dopamine is the quick and easy chemical, while serotonin is, like, the serotonin is the one you get from... Like, doing a year of meditating or, like, you know, a year of weightlifting and eating right and whatever. Yeah. That, that's how you get serotonin. You don't get dopamine from from eating, you know, a salad or whatever. Like, y- right. you just don't. But it, it's better for you in the long run. So, like, that. that's how I've always thought of it. Like, dopamine is the high time preference chemical and serotonin is the low time preference chemical. Like, you don't even really realize you're getting serotonin when you get it because it's just so uh, low-lying you know but it it it's it's truly what makes you happy um and not in kind of this quick and fleeting way that you know people in the modern day are, are so accustomed to uh as far as like social media and and you know nicotine and caffeine and alcohol and whatever you know so um yeah did that answer your so question? it's
0: uh yeah 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 you well that So whenever he's talking about the post stage or late stage capitalism creating the depression, what what he's actually saying is it's like the death of delayed gratification. And it is it is the birth or the uplifting of instant gratification. And so the reason that being plugged into the matrix is so important in his words is because you're getting that, that short high kind of like a heroin addict or, or a crack addict, crack addict. And you're always chasing that first high and you never, you never experience the high the same again. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, that's one thing you always hear addicts like complain about is I was always chasing that first high that first time I did it. The the high was so great. I was always chasing that feeling and I never could match it. So, so the highs keep getting lower. And so therefore you just keep doing more and more and more trying to get back to that original feeling.
1: Right. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing about like, I mean, delayed gratification is basically outlawed now, you know, because as far, and he writes about this in the book, you know, as far as, uh, And I use the example of a student or a veteran in my outline because, like, they have very similar uh, uh, experiences as far as bureaucracy goes because, like, my dad's a vet. I'm a student. So I deal with the university. He deals with the VA. And we have incredibly similar experiences where, you know, person A tells you something and then person B tells you something and they're totally different things. And there's no one person you can go to to get a final answer from, you know. And, like, this year's paperwork is different from last year's paperwork, you know. But 90% of it's the same, but it's a new form, so you have to redo all the paperwork again. And then it's going to change next year. It's still going to be, you know, 90% the same, but you're going to have to do it again. And, like, we can't keep your social security number on file. It's just we can't, you know. So you have to do all this paperwork all the time, and then... The rules are constantly changing. The requirements are constantly changing for what you need to do to keep up your good standing, or you know, keep your benefits or whatever. And uh, so, like at any given moment, uh, people don't have any, you know, solid footing uh, off of what they're doing. I mean, they they have like no orientation for their actions. And how are you supposed to plan when when that's the case? You can't, you know. So, and and then with the added Uh, aspect of social media and uh, just the ease of of dopamine that we have Uh, I mean like people my age have no idea what saving money is they only know what being in debt is and borrowing money when they need it like they, they have no idea and part of that is also like the gig economy like getting a job these days is not easy like I know some very talented people very hard workers That just getting a job is just a pain in the ass you know and i i know that that has a hell of a lot to do with where you are you know in the country right but i mean like the the, some some of the best jobs that people can get are you know like working at a gas station or something and like i i don't know how you plan to have uh a better future if that's the case you know I, i i just i don't know and and uh so, like, it, it seems like, and that helps the elites, you know, if, if the people can't plan, because then they're always looking, that's the nanny state, you know, they're always looking for, you know, the, the, the uh, handout to get them out of the mud, you know. So, I, 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 th- I think that that's very worrisome, and uh, that, that's, that's a major aspect of, like, the last third of capitalist realism, and uh, yeah, it, it makes me wish, although I, I bet he wouldn't have liked Hoppe or Mises, but it makes me wish he read a little bit about time preference in the Austrian tradition because that, that's, I think that's a major answer to a lot of these problems as far as like, the inability the in- to plan and the inability to save uh, or at least the, the like, conditioning not to you know, plan or save. Um, but I, I, I do think that Fisher really hit on something there. In the book.
0: Yeah, he no. I I feel like, and I was talking to a buddy of mine um, that's been on on my podcast a few times, who's another truck driver about about this this book earlier. We were texting back and forth about it, and yeah, I I think he he's hit on something. He's diagnosed something that's worthwhile. Um to to really look at and to understand and I think it's it's a it's a symptom of you know massive centralization where he called it which I thought was interesting he called capitalism like american capitalism decentralized stalinism which I thought was an interesting way to to go about about it because there's nothing really decentralized about the economy. It's, it's really, they've, they've tied it all together and really, uh, made it one monolith that, that we're all living under. And, you know, we, we have a situation now where, you know, I think it's your generation is supposed to be the first generation to not make as much as their parents made. And, and then you have you, you brought up the gig economy a while ago then you have this this Pro act that basically is there the democrats trying to outlaw the gig economy and make people more dependent on uh, on on government and on uh on unions and on the the big centralized controlled economy so i think he made a mistake calling it decentralized stalinism but i really think he was on to something with his diagnosis
1: yeah um uh, I, I i think that the well like again he was on the left and they have this this fear of well it's a fear of capital like in, in any sense and i don't know what their answer to capital is i, I don't maybe i'm maybe i'm the prototypical capitalist realist because i just don't understand uh but but what that what that becomes is like a fear of the markets and their issue is and this goes back to what i was saying earlier about like they're they're always talking about the feeling of various things and not getting into anything really concrete or like observable but um I, I I think that the issue is they feel that after Reagan and Thatcher, uh, we uh, the West took a very laissez-faire turn, which like it it didn't. It just didn't. I mean, like uh, <laughs> yeah, he you know, did.
0: He did mention uh, that after two thousand. There was massive deregulation, and I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" Yeah, like, I, I, no, he he didn't call it deregulation; he called it privatization. And I'm like, yeah. "What is he talking about?" The, the government got way more involved in everything after after 9 11. Like, what are you talking about?
1: Right. Well, I you know I I think like to them, or and this is just a, a lefty thing like uh, a sign of deregulation would be like Google Fiber you know, offering internet, but like, I mean, is they, they still, they feel like the end of every business is Google, but they don't pay attention. Like the steps that Google took to get where they are, you know, and it's always, you know, lobbying like always and, and, and bribes and, uh, just governmental interference. And and they never mention that. And, uh, I, I, I do have an issue with that too. And listen, you know, I, I like the book a lot. Um, but I, I definitely have some issues with it, you know. And it, it almost always with these lefty stuff, it, it's, it's when they mention economics in any capacity because they're almost always wrong, you know. So I, uh, I, I, I cannot say that the book is 100% correct. You know, like, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, before he died, uh, Mark Fisher was working on, like, his answer to uh, uh, capitalism and to, to offer a, a alternative, and he called it acid communism, and it is, it's weird. And it's not like communism, how, like, we think of it, but it's, it's, it's wacky, and he never finished it. And, uh, he, I, I mean, like, I, I, man, I, I can't, uh, I can't make any, uh, excuses for, like, uh, think, like saying that after 2000, you know, there, there's more privatization because, I mean, that, that that's, I, I don't think he was maliciously wrong, but I just think he was not informed because, you know, these philosophers yeah. and these people that write theory, like, they, they often overlook the more concrete. Uh, so that they can delve deeper into the abstract when, like, they, they make mistakes like that. And that's not... That doesn't, you know, justify it, but, you know. It, yeah, it, it's just a I,
0: mistake. I didn't think he was being malicious. I was yeah. just... I just didn't know what he was talking about. Right. You know, I was just kind of like, okay. Like, I, I don't I don't really get, like, what you're going for here. Like, you're not giving me any solid examples... Nothing, so I don't. I don't really know what you're talking about. More privatization since the '90s than before the '90s, and like I, I just, I didn't get it. So, but yeah, we're running a little bit over an hour, man. And uh, this is a lot for people to take in. This was, uh, I, I would say that you should read this book if you're interested in in capitalist philosophy. And just to kind of get an idea of where the left's coming from. And th- again, there's some decent decent diagnosis in this book. I, I got I got a lot out of it. Um, I just don't know. Like you said, I don't know if there's there, he's he would ever offer a really good um, prescription for for what he is diagnosed. But when you when you look back over the entire book. What is the ultimate, like, takeaway that liberty seekers could could take away from a book like this?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's that uh, things may be the way they are, but they don't have to be that way. You know, like, I, I think that, uh, and I know that people um, uh, in our, our movement don't necessarily believe that. But uh, like I, I think that, like I said earlier, uh, the last uh, maybe half of a paragraph is a, really, is, a, is a really good white pill. Do you mind if I read it? No, go ahead. Okay. The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. And I, I like that a lot, you know. Because I mean, it seems like we will never be able to uh, fight the the Bidens and the Clintons and the Bushes and you know whoever else is next. But you know, it it seems like every turn, especially during COVID, has just been incredible. Like the the amount of of uh, like civil disobedience. Uh, you know is really a big white pill and the amount of people like look at what florida's doing right now florida's fucking killing it man and i and i think people are really reacting positively to that and i i think that in how bad things are getting there there's a array of hope you know at the end of it and i think that with all the different people in our community that are making content and getting out there and meeting people events like childerberg uh i think that that just just strengthening those bonds and getting together and then stepping away from you know all the people that we hate you know i I think that that's the i think that's the step and you know that's why i'm excited about childerberg you know getting bigger because like people go and they realize how cool it is to physically be around people that speak their language and you know that you can you can just talk to for three days and not get bored with one another you know
0: yeah yeah and I think uh, if you know a lefty that that worships Mark Fisher hand them uh, the essay anarchism by Voltairine declare and make sure that they understand that post capitalism doesn't necessarily look like communism of any sort. It just looks like people interacting voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, that was one, one takeaway I, I took away from this. I was like, if this guy had just taken to heart what Voltairine Declare was writing in, in her essay, anarchism, he would, have uh, he would have seen, yes, there is a post capitalism. no, it looks nothing like I want it to look like. Yeah. Nothing like I expect it to look like. This doesn't go only go for communists. This goes for you fucking capitalists too. Like, post-capitalism is not going to be anything you expect.
1: 100%. Alright,
0: man. I'm going to stop the recording. Well, right. wait.
1: Plug. Plug. Plug, Cotton. <laughs> I'm sorry. Plug. No problem, man. Uh, on Twitter, Cottonarchist. And uh, then uh, in my bio, you'll see an at Slurp Gang Pod. That's my podcast. We had Tommy on uh, this last episode. And uh, yeah, we just have a good time and, and we don't really talk about anything serious. We just kind of hang out and, and joke around. And it's it's a really good time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And Childerberg. Check out Childerberg.
0: Yeah, go to Childerberg and definitely check out Slurp Gang. It's a lot of fun. If you're just looking for something goofy and just some you know anarchists just talking shit and bullshitting and not getting down into the nitty-gritty of philosophy like slurp gang's the place to go man and uh we just proved that this kid is one of the smartest ones out there this is our next generation of thinkers right here so you check out that slurp gang to know how how sick his sense of humor is
1: (laughs) thank you man
2: Play this game of pick and choose. Well, it's a game that was made for you to lose. It doesn't really matter how many times, it's the same old worn out story, same old lines. They're all pointing dirty fingers in hypocrisy, bragging on their feats of mediocrity again. Never really making it change but they keep on getting re-elected and I find that strange that's why I say fuck them don't feed them cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants that to take our freedoms yeah I said fuck them don't feed them cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants that to take our freedoms And that's why I say fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants that i taking take in our freedom. Yeah, I fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants that are taking our freedom.